Good morning. How you guys doing? Do you guys have a good week this week? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We have had an awesome time. Uh, so much so that we have decided as of about eight minutes ago that we're actually going to stay an extra week. Is that cool with you guys? Yeah. Some of you are excited and some of you are horrified. Uh, and that's, that's okay. We couldn't do that. Um, some of you ran out of clean clothes yesterday and that would not, that would not be a good, good thing. Well, hey, we have had an incredible week. Uh, we've got a bus ride ahead of us, don't we, for some of us? Where, where's the, where are the people from Albuquerque that have an hour-long ride home? They're all fired up and excited. Who's got an 18-hour ride home? Oh, yeah, there we go. We got some good, good stuff going on. Well, hey, we have been so blessed this week. Thank you guys for, for being here. It is just such an awesome camp. However, we got one more session. We got one more time that we're going to look at God's Word. And my encouragement to you is to not tune out. Can we, can we make that promise right now? Is that cool? We lock in, we got one more, and then we could just fall asleep on the bus. You know, Grace Church, we'll hit some, we'll hit some Cracker Barrel up on the way home, and it'll be awesome. Uh, but one more. Sound good? Sound good. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Let me pray once more, and we will begin. Father, thank you so much for this week. Thank you so much for the time that we've had to look at your word. Thank you for Pastor John and for Austin and the way that they have just showed us your truth this week. Thank you for the way that you've been faithful to work in the hearts of students. Pray now that you would just bless this time and have us consider how we ought to live in light of the faith that we proclaim. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this week has been, let me, let me say a couple things to you guys first. This has been an awesome week. We've loved it as staff, not just because of the games and the mud pit and the fact that my shins are all scraped up and like a pinkish hue right now or anything like that. Uh, this has been a great week because of how the Lord has worked. I mean, some of you came into this week with just kind of cold hearts and now you've been convicted about sin and have a new love for the Lord. Some of you have a, this new passion to want to make an impact on your campuses. Maybe others of you are new and you're just starting to figure out what is this Christianity thing. We're glad that you have come and we're praying that you'd continue to come either to the youth group that you came with or get plugged into a church at your own home. Some of you even came this week, maybe even just hoping to skate through the spiritual side and you got saved. The Lord showed you his grace and you recognized your sin and cried out to God, and he delivered you. That's amazing. All of those things I just talked about, from conviction, desire to grow, and salvation, all of that is the work of God. None of that can be manufactured just by, you know, we had the right combination of good jokes and flat jokes up here, and good games and injurious games and anything like that. That was God working through his word. We're thankful for how, how he's done this. And if you're really fired up right now, and you're thinking, you know, I'm loving the Lord, I'm thinking clearly, how do I keep this? Well, before I get into my message, I just wanna give you the, the secret that, well, how do I keep the quote-unquote camp high? How you do it is you continue to do the things that we've just done all week. Think about this week. You've been in the Word, reading the Word, hearing from the Word. 
You've spent time undistracted from the things in this world and focused on your walk with the Lord. You've had accountability and a spiritual emphasis in your conversations. Really, those are the things that make camp where you just feel nearer to the Lord. You're hearing the word, you're spending time talking purposely about him and you're putting aside distractions and putting your focus on him. Continue to do those things uh, as you get back to your youth groups. That's how we stay close to God. Well, this morning I wanna talk once more about follow me. Now, I gotta tell you, in the last couple of years, I've really started looking at church history. And I've been looking at different missionaries, different men who have lived incredible lives for the glory of God. People who have followed Christ almost to an extent were almost a little weirded out by how great their commitment is. History is full of people like this who live for Christ's name. Think of men like William Carey. Lived in England, could have lived a comfortable life, and yet spent his years as a missionary in India. Why did he do it? He had a saying that's become popular. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. As he spent years witnessing and preaching and established churches in the country of India. Think of men like Hudson Taylor who could have lived an easy, comfortable life in the United States and who gave it up to go be a missionary to China when there weren't many. Lived his life in the Chinese culture. My favorite missionary, one of my favorite guys, is a guy by the name of John Patton. John Patton's one of my favorite missionaries. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. But John Patton Patton was a missionary to the island of Vanuatu, the time called the New Hebrides. Now, if you were to draw a line from Hawaii to Australia, straight line from Hawaii to Sydney, Australia, somewhere right about the one-third mark of that line, you would get to this island, Vanuatu. Here's what's amazing about John Patton. This was an island that didn't speak English. This was a a very separated tribe of people. This is also an island that before John Patton came, 19 years earlier, two missionaries came. And within five minutes of arriving on shore, they were clubbed, beaten to death, cooked, and eaten because Vanuatu was an island of cannibals. And yet, John Patton said, I want to go and preach the gospel because the worship of Christ and the salvation of the lost is more important than my comfort. We'll talk more about Patton later. But one of my prayers for for this camp has been that you would be sparked to do great things for the Lord. That as a result of hearing the call to follow Christ, that some of you would become missionaries or become evangelists on your campuses or just really committed church members who are looking to disciple, or or just lights for Christ at your job, or have marriages that reflect the beauty of the gospel, that you would be involved in any way that you can to live to magnify Jesus Christ who saved you. For so many, follow me is about what you don't do. I think we've heard that this week, which is really good. Follow me means I don't live for myself. I don't live for these other passions. I think it's really good. My heart in this last sermon, and I want to just kind of walk through a text with you or highlight a portion of scripture. 
is to encourage you to live for the glory of Christ. That follow me doesn't mean I'm not just, it's not just that I'm not about myself, it's that I'm all about him and I wanna make his name known. This is in the scripture, this attitude, Galatians 1, 24, Paul, after explaining that he had to share his testimony with the Galatian church as they figured him out, said that they glorified God because of me. He said that my life was used to bring glory to God. I love Acts 13, 36. It's not even necessarily specifically talking about what it says, but in Acts 13, 36, it says that David fulfilled his purpose in his generation and died. And that's it. What a great goal for you and me. I want to fulfill my purpose in this generation and I want to die and go home. Philippians 1, 20, Paul says that it's his, according to his earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's one goal, that his life or his death would magnify Christ, that his life would be used almost as a mirror, that people wouldn't see Paul, but they'd see him and they would see Christ through him, see Christ reflected in him. And I wanna encourage you this morning as we head back, there's a lot of changes that, that you've been thinking about making and I'm praying that you would keep those changes that you wanna make. But I want you to have a passion to make an impact in this world for the glory of Christ to live for him. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11 in the beginning of chapter 12, and we're just going to kind of skim these passages. We're not going to look at all of them. Uh, I just want you to hear this, this heart that I have for you this morning. If you want to title this sermon, you could title it The Radical Life of Regular Faith. The Radical Life of Regular Faith. And let's look at this. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that there's a word that shows up a lot. Just take a peek. Look at verse 1, verse 3, verse 4. See it again in verse 6, verse 7. What's the word that you see all over? Faith. Faith. Now, you and I, I don't know if you know this, you and I all speak a, a language. There's another language that we all speak in English, and some of you speak other languages, but the language that you and I speak is a language that I call Christianese. Do you guys speak Christianese? A little bit of Christianese. You know, Christianese is words like intentional. I want to make sure we're being intentional. I want to make sure I'm being missional. Or right, modern day Christianese is like, ooh, that's really authentic. We want to be authentically rocked by the missional gospel or something like that. You know, are you guarding her heart? That's a Christianese thing that people say in dating. I don't think people say that outside of the church. We speak languages and sometimes when we use words, we don't understand what they mean. And one of those words we want to make sure we get is faith. Faith. It's important to know what faith is. In fact, Hebrews 11.6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what is faith? Well, there's a few words you could write down for it. You could say faith is devotion. Faith is allegiance. To have faith in God is to entrust your life to him, to be loyal, to be committed but if we say committed, how committed? I'm gonna look at faith this morning. And what you'll see is the word faith has a lot to do with follow me, entrusting, allegiance to God, uh, following Christ. The word faith all kind of encompasses that idea. So let's look at this. I have four points for you this morning. Four points I wanna look at. Let's first of all look at the elements of faith. The elements of faith. 
because we see here a description by the writer of Hebrews what faith is. We get a picture of it. Now keep in mind, the Hebrew people, the, the, the Hebrews, the letter that this, uh, the audience of this letter, this is a persecuted church. These are former Jews who have been converted to Christianity, who are being persecuted, who are seeing Jewish people not being persecuted and are wondering, man, did we blow it? Did we pick the wrong thing here? Should we maybe go back to Judaism? And so the author here wants them to see what faith is. What is real faith? Here's some descriptions of real faith. First of all, real faith is enduring. Real faith is enduring. Look at chapter 10, verse 39. It says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Real faith doesn't shrink back. Look at verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That genuine commitment to Christ isn't fickle. You know, it isn't, you know, fair weather. Well, I'll follow Christ when it's easy, but I won't follow Christ when things get tough. And if you're someone who's saying, I want to make a, a commitment, or I want to make an impact on in my life, I want to make an impact on my campus, I want to reach the lost on my team. If I'm in a singing group, I want to make a make a, I want to reach out to the unsaved, then we have to have a steadfast faith, an enduring faith that lasts to the end. Second, and we're gonna move through these quick. The second element of genuine faith is that it's unwavering. What I mean by that is it does not compromise. Look at verse one of chapter 11. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's a, there's a couple of words there that we don't really use that often. Assurance is one of them. And the other one is conviction. You know, we're not a, a country right now that has a lot of conviction. Uh, you know, morals are very fluid. We kind of choose to decide what's good in the moment. But genuine faith has an element of truth that it's believing in. There's something that you say, this is what I believe, and therefore this is what I stand on. This week, there were rules to the games, weren't there? And there were refs watching the games. Conviction says, well, you know, if I believe I need to follow the rules, whether the ref's looking or not, I'm gonna go ahead and follow them. Lack of conviction would be like, okay, I know it's steal the bacon, but all the refs are looking that way. So let me rib punch this person real quick, right? That's, that's not conviction because you're saying, I'm gonna just kind of make the rules based on when it's easy for me. See, conviction doesn't tolerate compromise. It says, I wanna follow Christ whether I'm at home or whether I'm just hanging with my friends and my parents aren't around. It's saying, I wanna make an impact whether my discipleship leader's in my life or whether I'm halfway across the country and they don't know where I am right now. A genuine faith that's rooted in conviction that says, I believe this word. I want to honor Christ to make an impact. Says, look, I live by the word, not by my feelings, not by the culture, not by society. That's the kind of faith that makes an impact. Not by what's comfortable, but what honors Christ. It's interesting, John Patton, when he was desirous to go to this island of Vanuatu, one of the elders in his church discouraged him and said, don't go. You will be eaten by cannibals. 
Don't go, you're gonna be eaten. But his conviction that this was what he needed to do was so strong. Here's what his response was. The elder's name was Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. It's a nice way of saying, you're an old man, anyway. And your own body is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. It's a tasty image. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. Look at that. That's kind of a, a gutsy statement. I mean, he says, you're going to die and be eaten by bugs in the ground. I'm going to live for Christ, so I don't care who I'm eaten by. We're all dying anyway. Let me live to honor Christ while I can. It's that kind of conviction, toughness in the soul. Third, the third element of faith and the kind of allegiance that makes an impact is undivided, an undivided faith. You don't have mixed loyalty. These people wanted to go back to Judaism. They can't. That's what the author's trying to say. You can't go back. You can't serve two masters. SoCal people, right? You can't like USC and UCLA, right? You can't do that. Texas people, you can't be a Longhorn and an Aggie fan, right? You just can't, you, you can't do it. They're, I think they're cheering. I'm not sure if they're what. I think this is some sort of gang sign, something like that. I don't, I don't know what that is. Anyway, just kidding. I'm a USC fan, so I shouldn't talk to Longhorn fans. That didn't go well for us 10 years ago. Anyway, um, but see, you can't have mixed allegiances. And we've seen that this week. If you're going to have genuine faith, you cannot love the world and God. Fourth, fourth, and I think this is helpful. It's a faith that's objective. Objective. It's a faith that has an object. We talked earlier this week that a lot of people, their religion is, well, you know, it's just whatever you believe, whatever you want to trust in, as long as you believe with all your heart, it's good by God. Look at 11.6. 11.6. It says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder for those who seek him. There's a faith that says he must believe that he is. You believe the right things about God. And we've heard that this week. I don't need to take much time on that. But it's not just faith in general. It's faith in God, faith in Christ, in what the scripture says about him. Fifth, and this is the one we got to hear. The kind of faith that makes an impact is what I call a joyful faith. A joyful faith. A joyful commitment. Look at the second half of verse six. Must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder for those who seek him. We'll see this later. But for so many Christians, they feel like there's a decision they have to make in life. And here's what the decision is. Well, I could choose fun or I could choose Christianity. That's what a lot of people think. Well, I could choose obedience or I could choose happiness. But genuine faith, the kind of faith that spreads the glory of Christ, realizes that the ultimate joy is in obeying God because they realize that God is a rewarder, that God is after their pleasure, 
That when God says follow him, it's actually the most satisfying thing they could find. There's no higher joy in life than taking your eyes off yourself and fixing them on the one who is the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most enthralling. That is where the greatest joy comes in. It's hoping in a greater reward, saying, I don't care about being comfortable in a house. I don't care necessarily about making sure I've got the perfect family and that we take family photos every six months and we have the best scrapbooks and we all love each other and everyone goes to a four-year college. The greater joy says, my, my greatest happiness is in heaven. I'm living for that because I know God is a rewarder. He offers the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate satisfaction. And by the way, it's not in this world, it's in his presence. We'll see examples of that when we look at the rest of chapter 11. And finally, genuine faith is an act of faith. It's a faith that is shown. We know that James says faith without works is dead. That if you're gonna say, I have this faith, it's gonna be demonstrated in your life. You're gonna seek to demonstrate it. You're gonna seek not just to say, well, here's the things I don't do, but here are the things that I do. You might be saying, Josh, what are some examples of this? Takes us to our second point, the examples of faith. What are the examples of faith? Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is a portion of scripture that many people call the hall of faith. It's, it's kind of an old school name, but that's okay. The hall of faith, because what we see here is all these examples of people who lived by faith, who lived with this commitment to God. Not faith like blind hope, well, I hope this works, but genuinely entrusting their life to God with everything. We're not gonna read all of them. You could look at them on your own time, but let me give you a few of them. Let's start in verse seven. Start in verse seven, you see, first of all, the example of Noah. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. You know what's interesting about Noah? Like, you know, we love the little Noah's ark story. I've even got Jude this past year, this little Noah's ark, and it's got like little finger puppets and a giraffe and an elephant and other animals and such. You know, what's, what's interesting is that Noah had never built an ark before. He'd never seen a flood before. God's telling him this stuff and he's never seen a lot of it before. You know what Noah is an example of? Noah is an example of obedience when obedience seems strange. Could you imagine, you know, it says Noah's preaching to everyone else. He spent those years preaching as he built the ark. And not one person repented except his family. You know why? Because they're like, what are you talking about, Noah? You're building a giant rectangle brick of wood. You're going to put all the animals on there and have your own zoo. Sorry, Noah, that's great. But this flood thing ain't happened. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's an obedience, a commitment to God and allegiance, even when everyone else around thinks, dude, this dude is weird. Right? And he really likes animals. I mean, like really likes animals. Even like worse than like a creepy old cat lady or something like that. This is a, a fascination with animals. Are we not sometimes called to the same thing? High school student, think about purity on your campus. And think about if you went to my purity talk on Wednesday, that same conversation 
with your unsaved friends on a public school campus? How would they have reacted to that? They're like, dude, this dude is weird. What are you talking about? Or they say like, what a, what a killjoy. What, what a stick in the mud. What a boring person, right? Obedience seems strange to the world. In fact, in 1 Peter, it talks about how the world looks at you and wonders why you don't jump into the same things they do. Why aren't you drinking and partying on the weekend? Why aren't you just experimenting with every sexual pleasure available? But genuine commitment, the kind that makes an impact, obeys even when it seems odd because your master is Christ and you're following him. Second, you see the example of Abraham. Look at verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By the way, that was the same faith some of you exercised when you got on the bus on Monday or Sunday. We don't know where we're going. Let's get on this thing. It says, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. You see, Abraham, Abraham was, was promised a nation, but God called him to go somewhere he's never been before. Called him to go somewhere like, this is not familiar to you. This will seem uncomfortable. The rest of your family is going to wonder why you're leaving. But I need you to go here. I think an example of obedience and uncertainty. See here, obedience in, in the midst of uncertainty. We see another example of this in Abraham's life. It's not the only time he did this. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It says that Abraham at one point, you know the story, God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. But God, Isaac is supposed to be the heir. Isaac is supposed to be the one through whom my nation is going to be built. Yet Abraham obeyed even in uncertainty. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. But Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That he trusted God even in that. I worry, I, I very much worry about this topic that we've been talking about, about saying, how do I really live for Christ and make an impact for him? Because one of the biggest threats to that in your life is comfort and certainty and laying out your four-year plan, and this is when I'm going to get married, and this is when I'm going to make sure we have kids, and you're just kind of laying your plan out. It's because we have the privilege of that in the United States. That's a privilege that doesn't exist in other countries. You know, we don't really believe when people say that you don't have tomorrow promised. But radical faith, or should I say regular faith, obeys God and follows his purpose for their life even when it leads to uncertainty, even when it means stepping out and saying, God, this doesn't totally give me security for how I'm gonna live in this world, but this is what you want and I'm in. Think about that when I think about those missionaries. It should be the same for our lives as well. Next, look, look at Moses, look at verse 23. Verse 23, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now stop right there. 
You gotta realize when it says that Moses it was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know, maybe when you hear that, you're thinking like, you know, sovereign prince of Egypt or something like that. You're, you're picking chariot races on the, the top of the wall or whatever. You gotta realize that he is the prince of the king. I mean, you wanna talk about wealth? Moses had wealth. You wanna talk about access to wives and concubines and any kind of sexual pleasure? Moses had that. Any form of entertainment Moses could have ordered up. And yet it says he rejects it. Why? Verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why would he do that? Because it's right? Because he's obligated to? Because he's a good Jewish boy and goes, well, I want to have fun, but I need to choose God. No, because in verse 26, it says, for he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And he was looking to the reward. You see, if you're gonna say no to living for this world and for this pleasure, you're not gonna do it out of mere obligation in gritting your teeth. You're gonna only be able to do it if you see Christ as the greater reward. If you see him as, as we saw earlier, he who gives good things, the rewarder of those who seek him. And Moses saw a greater pleasure, a greater delight. He rejected the pleasures of this world and said, there's a better joy in heaven. We also, we see a lot of other examples of faith. We skip, I'll skip through a few. Jump down to verse 33. Because we see this faith also in great victories. We see all these people who, verse 33, by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, all these amazing things that happen in the lives of people in light of their commitment to Christ. By the way, we see the same thing happening today. I have a friend who lives in Uganda who after years of being a wealthy businessman could have lived here in the United States, took one trip to Uganda, saw the need for the gospel there, sold his house, sold his business, and moved there. Because he said the need of the lost to know Christ is greater. By the way, he's making impact right now nationally. And there are Ugandan pastors learning from him and the gospel is spreading throughout that country. I just heard this week of a, of a, of a, a clinic in Hawaii that operates just free. There's no charge there. It's a pregnancy clinic that as women online search abortion in Hawaii, this is the first place that comes up and they come to this clinic and these people talk to them about the gospel and many women are choosing to keep their baby or to give it up for adoption. Amazing things that people are doing, saying, I'm not gonna do this for money. I'm gonna give my time for this. Imagine what your campus would be like if you lived like, like these people did. Imagine the impact freshmen you could have in the next four years if you say, I wanna stay loyal when it stays weird. I wanna follow the pleasures of Christ. And I wanna obey him even in uncertainty. Imagine the impact you could have. And yet Hebrews 11 also teaches us that it won't always be good. 
Following Christ won't always be good. Look at the second half of verse 35. We see all those good things that happen by faith. And yet it says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. By the way, that's sawn in two vertically, not horizontally. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill, treated. If you're gonna live with this kind of commitment and you're gonna try to penetrate a world that hates Christ, make no mistake, the world will fight back. But this is normal. This is expected. Philippians 1.29, you know this verse. It says, for, your, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. But you missed that because you've heard that verse before. It's been granted to you to believe in him and to suffer for his sake. You know what that word granted is? It's the same word grace. His gift to you is to believe in him and for you to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer. And there is no glorification of our Lord who suffered if we are not willing to suffer along with him. You can't avoid suffering. It's very easy. You won't make much impact. You'll have your Bible memorized. It'll look nice. Know a lot of Christian music, maybe rock some Air One or something once in a while. But without suffering, you will not make an impact. This happened to John Patton. John Patton moved to Vanuatu with his wife and child, who's about three years old. Four months into being there, four months into this, imagine you're saying you're going to live here for life. Four months in, his wife dies. And his son three days later. I mean, wouldn't you just like give up? I mean, at that point you're like, God, I made a mistake. It's over. This isn't worth it. I had a great wife. I had a great son. I'm just going to pack up my ball and go home. I'm out. And yet he remained there. In fact, he remained there even though for the first four years he didn't have a single conversion. Because how do you convert someone who doesn't speak the same language as you? But he was in it for Christ. And we remain in it for the reward, even in suffering. Verse 39 and 40, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. There's a better reward even, even it says Abraham was seeking a greater country. Verse 16 of 11, but it is as they say, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. And so we live in this world, not like our world is our home, but like heaven is our home. And then we can endure suffering in this life if it means more can glorify Christ than the next and that I can glorify him to a greater extent. So what the author has set out is this. He's explained faith. 
And he's shown what faith has looked like. We've seen the elements of faith. We've seen examples of faith. Now let's look at point three, the exhortation to faith. The exhortation to faith. Chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, therefore in light of everything that we just talked about, in light of these people who have gone before and though life has been good for some and bad for others, they've all been allegiant to Christ. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He calls them to run to live all for Christ. This is a term for sprinting, sprinting as if you are in a race. In the same way these people trusted in God, you also run. You run for his glory, you run for his delight, you run for him as your Lord and not for yourself. All of your life for Christ. Notice he doesn't say jog. He doesn't say, you know, just kind of speed walk or meander. You run. This is a race. There's effort. You're putting everything into it. All exertion with these, with these crowds on the sidelines who have run before you. You looking to their example, you run this race in the same way they have run this race. Living your life for Christ. I think it's amazing, by the way, if, maybe you noticed this, we had all these names but in verses 33 to the end there, where it talks about the good things and then the suffering, those people weren't even named. Do you see that? They lived for the glory in Christ, died, and Scripture doesn't even record their name. I'd love the same thing for me. And I think you'd want the same thing for you. I was encouraged. There's a man lived a few hundred years ago by the name of John Calvin. And he stood for the truth. And he was a a great pastor, preached the word, loved his people. And when he died, he said, do not give me a tombstone. I don't don't want people to know where my death is marked. I don't want people to know where I'm buried. I simply want to die and let those who love Christ as a result of my ministry continue to live for his glory. But don't make it about me. Run for the sake of his glory. Live for him. Continue your commitment to Christ. Notice, by the way, it says how to do this. We do this laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Right? If you're trying to run, you don't want to be trapped. You don't want to be caught. Some of you experience this in the mud wars, someone holding onto your ankle. It's a little harder to move, right? Well, it's hard to run when there's something around you. So what does he say? It says, lay aside two things. First one is, well, I'll start with the second one. He mentions sin. We get that, right? It's hard to live for Christ's glory when, you're, when you love yourself, when you love lying, when you're addicted to stuff on the computer. You lay aside those things. You're saying, I don't have time for gossip that ruins relationships. I've got a God to honor, not people to distort the view of Christianity with. You lay aside sin, but you also lay aside encumbrances. Now notice, encumbrances aren't sin. 
which means there's things in your life that entangle you, that slow you down, that maybe only cause you to stroll the race, that aren't necessarily evil, but they slow you down. We've talked about a lot of those this week. And the question we could ask is, are you actually running? Or what are the weights you're like tying around your ankle? What are the objects that you're putting on your weekends? Let me take up this commitment. Let me pursue this relationship. All right, now I'm running for Christ. Here we go. What are those things? And how much less is God being magnified as a result of them? Now stop thinking what you're thinking for some of you. Somebody's saying, Josh, that sounds really great. And when I turn 25, I will really get after it. You're not too young for this. You're not too young for this. And a little bit of our culture right now is reaping what we've sowed by treating teenagers as if they're second-class Christians who can wait till they're 30 to do stuff like this. You can do this. In fact, you need to do this. The church needs you to do this. The glory of Christ requires that you do this. Do it now. Life is short. Christ is worthy. As the old saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Run the race. Which takes us to our last point. We've talked about the elements of faith, the examples of faith, the exhortation or encouragement to faith. And now we're going to see the last, we'll call this point the the greatest example of faith. Or if you're AP English, you could call this the epitome of faith. Because it tells us how we should run. You should run laying aside encumbrances. But then verse two, how are we gonna run this race? We do so fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. He says, you run fixing your eyes on Christ. If you're going to do this, you have to consider Christ. You have to look at him, view him, behold him, love him. What does it mean by he's the author and perfecter of our faith? Well, by the author of our faith, the term is actually used as example. It's the idea that's been communicated. He's the greatest example of commitment, of loyalty. Well, how loyal was Christ? How committed was Christ to honoring his father? Here's how committed. He went to the cross for your sin. He prayed in the garden, Father, let this cup pass, but not my will be done, but what? Your will be done. See, Christ is the ultimate example of honoring God in the most difficult of circumstances, without flinching, without wavering. And so we look at him, we fix our eyes on him as we're trying to live and say, his death on the cross is what motivates us. You might say, but that's hard. It's difficult to finish this race. I mean, I'm only 13 years old. I plan to live till I'm 60, 70, 90. How am I gonna do that for 
70 more years. The good news is this. It says he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes on him because not only is he our example, but he's the one that's perfecting our faith. He's going to be the one that brings it into completion. As we're striving so hard to hold on to him, we find that it is he that is holding on to us the whole time. And so we run even when we're tired, even when we just want to be selfish, because he's calling us and he's helping us. And oh, by the way, we fix our eyes on him because he is our reward. This amazing Christ who knew about the suffering, he endured the cross for the joy set before him, for the joy of rescuing sinners, for the joy of honoring his father, for the joy of being crowned Lord. And he has been crowned Lord. It's this amazing example that we've studied all week. And now he is our author, he's our perfecter. And friends, he is our reward. He is the one we ultimately get at the end. That's what heaven is. I don't escape disease. I don't escape a hoarse voice. I don't escape being sick. I, I escape not being near to Christ, but I get him fully. And so we fix our eyes on him. Let me live for him now so that I get him in the end. Yesterday, I, I did play in the mud pit. Many of you played in the mud pit. And it's an exhausting game, right? I mean, how many of you jumped in and like four seconds later, you're just toast. I mean, you're wiped. You're trying to everything. You know, I'm a rib punch, shin kick. I'll tickle someone if it gets them to let go. Whatever it takes, right? You're like pulling and whatever, which I did, by the way. And it was very successful. But at some point, just when you think you're tired, you look up and you realize man, I'm only like six feet away from winning. My side's right there. What happens at that moment? It's an extra boost of energy, right? There, you see the prize at the end and suddenly there's, there's more zeal that you have. You don't feel as tired. You're able to put in that extra effort and to finish. And then you die and you just slop down in the mud and slide right back in like we saw that little guy do. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we try to live for him, in the midst of a world that's becoming increasingly more difficult, in, in the midst of our flesh that daily wants us to live for ourselves, fixing our eyes on Jesus helps us run and helps us to live for him and helps us to not consider ourselves John Patton spent most of his life, adult life, in Vanuatu, outlived two wives. And yet today, a large majority of Vanuatu would call themselves Christian. Somewhere between 80 and 85% would claim to be evangelical. Not all of them are saved, but a third of them belong to the same church that John Patton came and started. A massive impact. What if he had given up? What if he had just quit after those first four months? What if he said, you know what? I, I live in Scotland. Scotland is so pretty. 
People have nice accents there. All my friends and family are there. He had a thriving ministry by there, by the way, a street evangelism ministry. They, they saw so much fruit, so comfortable. Why not go back? He writes, after the death of his wife, stunned by that dreadful loss and entering upon the field of labor to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me. My reason seemed for a time almost to give way, but the ever merciful Lord sustained me. In that spot, talking about where he, with his own hands, buried his wife and his son, that spot became my sacred and much frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. But for Jesus and the fellowship he gave to me there, I would have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. Because of his nearness to Christ, because of the love the Lord had shown him, and for the sake of the lost coming to know him, for the spread of the glory of his Redeemer, he continued. We must do the same. When we look at Christ, we will see his beautiful worth, and we will follow him, and we will live lives that don't bring us fame, but that bring him glory. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, help us to put into practice what we've learned this week. Help us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Our affections have been stirred, but Lord, let our lives be changed. And God, let us live for you. Let us like John the Baptist say that I must decrease and you must increase. And let us fix our eyes on you and finish our lives for your glory. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen.